Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah chapter 10. Now, Lord willing, we're finishing Zechariah chapter 10 this morning. Then next week, I have been talking about how we need to go back and show what happens during the tribulation period to the earth to tie all of those scriptures together. So, Lord willing, that's what we'll do next Sunday morning. So, uh, right now, go to Zechariah chapter 10 and look with me at verse 9. If you look at verse 8, he says, I will hiss for them and redeem them. So, he's calling them back into the land. For I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. And I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries. And they shall live with their children and turn again. I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt and gather them out of Assyria. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon, and place shall not be found for them. And he shall pass through the sea with affliction and shall smite the waves in the sea and all the deeps of the river shall dry up and the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away and I will strengthen them in the Lord and they shall walk up and down in his name, saith the Lord. Lord, help us as we study your word. Lord, help us to to see these marvelous things from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we did break down and explain this text last week. So if you don't understand some of that language, download last week's sermon and and we break that down for you. But I want you to see a couple of things. The first thing that I want us to acknowledge is that every word of God is true. Amen? Every word of God is true. That is what we believe. And, And people have different ideas. Look at what the Bible says in chapter 10. And verse 10, he says, I will bring them again, also out of the land of Egypt. I will bring them again. Now, we know that after AD 70, that the children of Israel were scattered all over the world. And keep your place in Zechariah. Go to the book of James, chapter 1. And verse 1. James 1.1, 1, 1. the Bible says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. So the children of Israel have been scattered abroad around the world, but God is telling us in the book of Zechariah, and he says it all over the Bible, that he is going to bring them back again into the land. How many of you believe that he's going to do that? And then, of course, he began doing that when the nation of Israel was reestablished. That's not finished. If you go back to Zechariah chapter 10, notice he says that they're going to dwell in Assyria and they're going to dwell in Lebanon. All of that is included in the land. That's all a part of Israel. I've been to Lebanon. They are not interested in being a part of Israel. That's why they're still at war. When I went from Israel to Lebanon, I actually had to go into Jordan and they had to strip everything, all of my documentation to show that I had never been, to make it appear I had never been in Israel, or they wouldn't let me in Lebanon because Lebanon is at war with Israel to this day. So it's interesting that God is going to bring them back completely into the land. And how many of you believe that passage, that he's going to bring them again? See, There are different responses that people have to Scripture. And I think they can be boiled down to to just a few. First, some completely deny it and others ignore it. 
How many of you know people that simply do not believe the Bible is true? They think it's some kind of fiction. They don't believe it. Others can't even be bothered to think about it. If you ask them, do you believe the Bible is true? Nah, I don't care. Doesn't matter to me. Wouldn't you agree that's probably where most of the world is? They just ignore it. they, they, They don't care. The next group are some people believe, but they believe it ignorantly. I know people that they are sure that the Bible is true. They just don't know anything about it. I don't know if you know people that are like that. And I can tell this because I was on the phone with a Bible teacher this week. He called to ask me a question and teaches at a major Bible college. And I would follow up with questions. Okay, so I was assuming some knowledge. And I would say something like, of course, you know about the um, edict of toleration or the act of uniformity. It was the act of uniformity that I was talking about. And you know what happened with the act of uniformity? He didn't have any idea. And this is a guy teaching on the history of the church, and he doesn't know what happened in America when they said under the, the act of uniformity that if you were not educated in a state church school, a Church of England school, then you are considered uneducated. How many of you have heard that all of the Baptists were uneducated? You've heard that? That's because of the act of uniformity. They even said that if you were not married in an Anglican church or Church of England church, then you were living in adultery. Your marriage was not real. There were things like that that took place. So I'm talking to this guy. He didn't have any idea about it. Well, he was teaching ignorantly. And I was nice to him, and I tried to help him with it. But I was thinking, man, I don't want to sit in his class. He didn't have any idea what he's talking about. So this is the way that people study the Bible. They, they believe it, but they don't know anything about it. And so many preachers, they preach on this surface level, and they never actually get down into the meat of the Word of God. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? This is the way people approach Scripture. And then some people believe it superficially. They believe it superficially. And you find this with a lot of modern evangelicals. They believe the Bible, but when we do something like we're going to do today, there might be some of you, you might be a visitor here, and you come from a a traditional evangelical church in the 21st century, and I'm going to show you some things from the Bible, and you're going to walk out of here saying, man, that place is kooky. These people are weird. Why? Because most people, they believe the Bible, they just don't believe what it says. They believe the Bible, they just don't believe, listen, the words. See, we believe every word of God is pure. That's what we believe. So where we are, we believe it completely, but not only do we believe it completely, but we take it seriously. That is what the Bible says we believe is true. What it says about me, it's true. What it says about my future is true. When it tells me if I behave a certain way, this is going to be the result. I believe that. And when God says he's going to bring his people back into the land, we believe it. Amen? We believe it. Man, I'd like for us to just have a little southern in us today. I need to, We believe that what he says is going to be true. Amen? That's so much better. Man, that's so much better. I'll preach long now. Okay, look at, look at Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5. Proverbs 30 and verse 5. Every word of God is pure, 
He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. How many believe every word of God is pure? Well, that means we've got to have every word of God. How many of you believe God has preserved every word of God for us so that we can have it? All right, look at Psalm 119, 160. I know many of you will remember this. This was our theme passage when we did the uh, 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. So Psalm 119, look at 160, verse 160. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Amen? We believe that we believe it's true from the beginning. That means we believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The heaven and the earth. He created it all, and he did it all in six days. We believe that God created the world. He is the creator of the world. We believe the creation accounts of the Bible. We believe it's true from the beginning, even those first 12 chapters that many evangelicals reject. I think I've mentioned to you that I watched in, or I showed the video a while back uh, of a conversation between Eric Metaxas. He wrote that book on Bonhoeffer and the new book on, on Martin Luther. And he's interviewing this guy, Timothy Keller, who's a very popular Christian pastor and author. And he, Timothy, or, uh, uh, Metaxas says to Keller, um, do you believe in a literal Adam? And he said, because I don't know of any intelligent Christian who does. Because we're just stupid. That's the way that they look at us. That's the way that they look at us. And so Keller... He says, well, I do believe in an original Adam, but the way the conversation goes is he believes in evolution, that the world is billions of years old and it evolved to where we are, but God created an Adam and put him into that world. Well, you, that's just marrying two stupid things together. So we believe every word of God is true, and we believe they go back to the, that, that, they, that the Bible is true all the way back to the beginning. And let me just add this. You know, there's some people that don't believe that a preacher ought to call out people by name, like Eric Metaxas or Timothy Keller. Now, praise God for everything good Eric Metaxas does, and praise God for anything good that Timothy Keller does. Praise God for that. I believe Keller is born again. I don't know if Metaxas is. But I hope that he is, and we want to be in heaven together with them. Amen? But the Apostle Paul, how about... The Apostle Paul called out Timothy, I'm sorry, called out Peter by name and then told everybody about it. I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Well, that is the model of Scripture. That is what we are to do. That's what we are supposed to do as preachers of the Word of God. You, if you can't identify a false teacher, then people will never understand that they're teaching falsely. And we're supposed to warn people. Okay, so we believe it completely and we take it seriously. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, I got to tell you, I asked for the Southern, and you, you all have, you, you've waned a little bit. Good, the air conditioning's coming out. It'll wake you guys back up. All right, 2 Timothy 3, and look at verse 16. All, what does all mean? All means all, and that's all that all means. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. 
All of the Bible is given to us for a reason. All of it. And so we're going to be tracking some of that down today. But we believe it completely and we take it seriously. So if you go back to Zechariah chapter 10, what has happened is God had prophesied that there was going to be 70 years of captivity. And that 70 years of captivity began with the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to look at that in a minute. And how long did the 70 years of captivity last? 70 years. Why do we know that it was 70 years? Because God said it would be 70 years. And so guess how long it was? It was 70 years. So you're in Zechariah chapter 10. Go to Daniel chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible uh, in the chair in front of you, or should be one near you in the chair in front, one of the chairs in front of you. You'll be really lost without your Bible. All right, Daniel chapter 9, and look at verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So Daniel realized the 70 years were about up. He had read in the book of Jeremiah, and he did the math, and he believed God. And do you know what, what, what happened? God did what he said he was going to do. And so Daniel began counting based on what the Bible had said. And God had announced 70 years of captivity in Babylon. So we know what happened that by the decree of Cyrus, they were able to go back to the land and they began rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the temple. They had stopped. And then Zechariah is sent, Haggai and Zechariah are sent to get them moving again. And so they begin doing it. By the time we get to Daniel chapter, I'm sorry, to Zechariah chapter 10, the work has been completed and God is beginning or the work has been commenced. And now God is telling them some things about the future. So let's break this down. I want you to see that there were three sieges by Nebuchadnezzar against the children of Israel. Now, we're going to get into some detail here. You're going to have to listen on purpose. Maybe just yell amen at some obscure item just to demonstrate that you're awake. If every word of God is true, then every one of them ought to excite us, right? Okay. Right? Okay. So don't fall asleep. First siege of Nebuchadnezzar. Look at Jeremiah chapter 46. Man, I'm going to laugh when some of you just yell amen at the most inane stuff now in this message. If you're a guest, yes, we are crazy. Jeremiah 46. Look at verse 1. Jeremiah 46 and verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Gentiles, against Egypt, against the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, smote in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So there are a bunch of names here, and we'll get to that in a minute. So what, this, this is the Battle of Carchemish, and that took place in 606 B.C. So this is a matter of history. It's, this, this is not just Scripture. This is actually Scripture and secular history. We know that this took place in 606 B.C. 
So Nebuchadnezzar battles against Pharaoh Necho. Now, how many of you remember those, those Necho candies? And you, you kind of want some right now. Do you remember you're eating them and they're really good and then you get to the licorice one and it tastes like shampoo or something and it's just... How many of you remember, know exactly what I'm talking about? Okay. So Jehoiakim is bound in fetters as a result of this. So the, the, the Egypt is defeated, these other nations are defeated, and now Nebuchadnezzar rules the whole nation. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles chapter 36, and look at verse 5. Jehoiakim was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did that which was evil in the sight of God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in fetters to carry him to Babylon. So Jehoiakim is bound in fetters. This is 606 BC. This is when this takes place. The temple is plundered and hostages are taken. So this is when Daniel and the best of the best of Israel are taken into Babylon. All right, so now it, sometimes we forget that there were stages in this uh, destruction of Jerusalem. So this begins what is called the servitude of the nation, the servitude of the nation. So what God is telling Israel is you're going to go into captivity for 70 years and you're going to be servants. But what didn't happen was Jerusalem was not destroyed. The temple was not destroyed. All of the people were not taken. It was just the best of the people that were taken. And God said, you'll be allowed to stay in your castle, in, in your palace. That's what God told Jehoiakim. You'll be able to stay in your land. You will just be servants to Nebuchadnezzar. That's the servitude of the nation. They were told they were going to be servants. And nobody said amen right there. That should have been a big amen. Okay. So this begins the servitude of the nation. And it lasts how long? I put it on the screen just to give you a help. It lasted 70 years exactly to the day. That's how long it lasted. But there's another stage of this. The second siege by Nebuchadnezzar. And look at what happens here. Jehoiakim ignores what the prophet Jeremiah told him. So what I just told you, that, that, that you're going to be a servant, you're going to be able to stay in your palace, you're going to be able to stay in your land, but you're going to be a servant. Well, Jehoiakim was worried about the people. He thought they would overthrow him. And he said that to the prophet. And the prophet said, no, they will not do that. Listen to what I'm telling you. This is the word of the Lord. And of course, he rebelled and ignored the word of the Lord. And now you have the second siege by Nebuchadnezzar. So Jehoiakim ignores Jeremiah's counsel and he rebels. And there's a five-year battle. Jehoiakim dies. Look at Jeremiah chapter 22. Look at verse 17. But thine eyes... And thine heart are not but for thy covetousness and for to shed innocent blood and for oppression and for violence to do it. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, 
They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or ah, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass, drawn and cast forth from the gates of Jerusalem. So this is how God prophesied the end of Jehoiakim. So Jehoiachin, sometimes in the Bible he's called Jeconiah, in other places he's called Keniah. This is Jehoiakim's son, and he follows the reign and reigns until the siege is over. So we're in Jeremiah chapter 22. Look at verse 24. As I live, saith the Lord, though Keniah, this is Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence. And it goes on to describe how wicked this Jehoiachin or Keniah is. Wouldn't you think they'd learn their lesson seriously? But they never did. They didn't. And so he ends up dying as well. And so Jehoiachin is captured in this siege, and he's captured along with 10,000 captives, 1,000 skilled craftsmen. Go to 2 Kings 24. Let's look at it. 2 Kings chapter 24. What's interesting, this captivity, this Babylonian captivity, it's repeated eight times in the Bible. How many of you think God wanted them to learn the lesson? Over and over again, we get information about this. Look at 2 Kings chapter 24 and verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. So this is Jehoiakim rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldees and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the children of Ammon and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he did. And also for the innocent blood that he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So referring us to the book of Chronicles. Keep going. So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his stead. And the king of Egypt came not again any more out of his land. The king of Babylon had taken uh, from the river of Egypt unto the river Euphrates all that pertained to the king of Egypt. And we looked at that at the battle of Carchemish. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. And his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. At, the, at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, and his servants did besiege it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his princes and his officers, and the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. And he carried away all Jerusalem and all the princes 
and all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths, none remained save the poorest sort of the people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, and the king's mother, and the king's wives, and his officers, and the mighty of the land, those carried he into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And all the men of might, even 7,000, and craftsmen and smiths, a 1,000, all that were strong and apt for war, even them the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, the, his father's brother, so this is Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his stead, and changed his name to Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was 20 and 1 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord it came to pass in Jerusalem and in Judah until he had cast them out from his presence that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So here's what we have. His uncle Zedekiah, he's installed as a vassal king. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesy about this whole thing, but false prophets again hold sway and move the people. Now remember, we saw that in uh, Zechariah chapter 10 at the beginning of the chapter, how false prophecies, false dreams, false diviners. And in this process, God even talks about that. We're not going to look at those passages today. So because they rebel, there's a third siege that takes place. This begins the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, we talked about the servitude of the nation. Don't confuse the servitude of the nation with the desolation of Jerusalem. Somebody say amen right there. Amen. It's important that we don't mess this up. So the desolations of Jerusalem begin in 587. Now, how many of you know that 587 is later than 606 when we're going B.C.? And what's interesting is the servitude of the nations lasted how long? I'm going to start over. <laughs> how long did the servitude of the nation last? To the day. It was 70 years. The desolations of Jerusalem also lasts 70 years to the day, but this starts in 587. So now we have to reconcile the two prophecies. This is also 70 years, but it's not coterminous with the servitude. It starts later, 606, 587. All right, let's continue. The city and the temple are destroyed. We just looked at that. The city and the temple are destroyed, and it continues. So what does this have to do with our text in Zechariah? These three sieges, the servitude of the nation and the desolations of Jerusalem, what does this have to do with our text, Zechariah chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, where he says, I will bring them again, I will sow them again in the land. What does this have to do with it? Well, God is very specific in his prophecies. Go to Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 2. such a great verse. There should have been an amen right there when I said this is a great... You haven't read it yet, though, do you? So, Proverbs 25, 2. Look at what it says. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. 
It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Now, remember what the Bible says about us. We are priests and kings before God. We are a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. That's us. So God has concealed some things in his word, and we are supposed to search them out. Now, I wish that I were the one who had found this. I didn't find it. Someone else found it, and I got to read it and teach it. So this is pretty fun. Here's what we're going to do. In Ezekiel chapter 4, go with me. I want you to see something. Go to Ezekiel chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Ezekiel chapter 4. Let's look at verses 1 through 8. Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile and lay it before thee and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem. So just you, you can see exactly what this is. They're writing, he's going to write this as a picture on a tile. And on your picture, verse 2, lay siege against it and build a fort against it and cast a mount against it. Set the camp also against it and set battering rams against it round about. So how many of you have seen these dioramas, these displays of military battles? That's what God is telling uh, Ezekiel to do is to draw this out as a picture. Verse three, moreover, take thou unto thee an iron pan and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city and set thy face against it and it shall be besieged and thou shalt lay siege against it. This shall be a sign to the house of Israel. Remember, the Jews require a sign. Verse 4. Lie thou also upon thy left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days. 390 days. So 390 days. Do you see that? How many days? 390 days. But these 390 days that the prophet is to lay on his side represent 390 years. That's what he's telling them. All right, let me read that verse again. Verse 5, For I have laid upon thee the years of the iniquity according to the number of the days, 390 days. So shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on the right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. Therefore thou shalt set thy face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and thine arm shall be uncovered, and thou shalt prophesy against it. And behold, I will lay bands upon thee, and thou shalt not turn thee, from one side to another till thou hast ended the days of thy siege. So he had to lay on his side 390 days and he had to lay on his other side how many days? 40. So what's 390 plus 40? You can tell the math people, like half the congregation got that, just like that, okay? So in Ezekiel 4, 1 through 8, 430 years of judgment are predicted. But that brings us a question. If we account for the 70 years of the captivity... And how many years of the captivity were there? 70 years of the captivity. If we account for the 70 years of the captivity, what about these other 360 years? They're unaccounted for. 
They're unaccounted for. So how do we figure this out? What do we do with this? It's very interesting. Look at Leviticus chapter 26. I want you to see something. We've looked at this passage several times. We'll look at it again next week, Lord willing. Leviticus chapter 26. Young people, do you know why I say Lord willing when I announce what we're going to do? Because the Bible says when you tell somebody you're going to do something in the future, if the Lord wills it. We're not promised next week. So that's why I say that. That's just not a throwaway line. I'm trying to be obedient to Scripture. Okay? So look at Leviticus chapter 26. So we have read before the beginning of this. If you remember verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season and the land shall yield her increase. You all remember we looked at that when we looked at Zechariah chapter 10, looking at the rain in the land. Now, it's very interesting. God tells them if they don't do these things, he's going to multiply his judgment by seven. Look at verse 18. And if ye will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Do you see that? He's going to multiply his judgment by seven. Look at verse 21. And if you walk contrary unto me and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. We'll look at that specific passage next week. Look at verse 28, or verse 24. Then will I also walk contrary unto you and will punish you yet seven times for your sins. It's a multiplication. Do you see that? Verse 28. Then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times more for your sins. So now how many of you recognize that Israel never really turned back to God after the captivity? Short periods of time, but they never really turned back to God. So what did God do? He multiplied the judgment by seven. Now check this out. Let's see if that works out to be true. What if we multiply 360 years by seven? That gives us 2,520 years. And those are 360-day years. Now, you understand, we looked at that already a few weeks ago. On the Jewish calendar, it's a 360-day year. And it's really on God's calendar. When he identifies how long a month, how long several periods are, it gives you a 360-day year. So now, this is where I need you guys to really focus in because we're going to start doing some math. And how many of you struggle to do math in your head? Honestly, you struggle to do math in your head. Me too. That's why I'm going to be staring at this screen and reading it so I don't mess it up. So you guys stare at that screen and I'll stare at this screen. All right? Amen? I'll start over. I will. I'll threaten you. All right. So 2,520 years multiplied by 360 days, that equals 907,200 days. How many of you are getting revival already? You can see how good this is and God's speaking to your soul. 907,200 days That's what happens when you multiply 360 by 360 days, all right? So on our calendar, in 365-day years, that's 906,295 days. So in 365-day years, that's 360, we just read that. I wanted you to see the numbers because of what comes below it. That comes to 280, I'm sorry, 2,483 years, nine months, 
in 21 days. This is going to become important. How many of you see that that's how that breaks down on our calendar? Years, months, days. Is every word of God true? This is cool. But we can't forget about leap years. So if you're going to do the math, you have to remember leap years. So what happened was the Julian year on the Julian calendar is 11 minutes, 10.46 seconds longer than the solar year. Amen? I know you're saying, I don't know. I'm just reading it. Therefore, the Julian calendar contains three leap years too many every four centuries. So every four centuries, they have too many leap years. There's too many days. All right, so now look at what happens. By the year 1742 AD, we had accumulated an error on our calendar of 11 days. The calendar was off by 11 days. So what happened? Well, that error was corrected by the Gregorian reform. How many of you, that's your favorite thing is the Gregorian reform? It's just, I love it. It's very meaningful to me, which declared September 3rd to be September 14th. September 3rd became September 14th. They took care of the 11 days. How many of you can tell that? Right? If you add 11 to 3, you get 14. So we have September 14th. The reform also declared the years 1700, 1800, and 1900 as common years and 2000 as a leap year. So they're trying to reconcile this problem with the calendar. So we're trying to figure out how many days to add in our math for the leap years. And here's how this works out. Dividing 2,483 years by four, we get 621 with 18 too many. Remember, three extra for every four centuries. Are you follow me on this? Somebody say amen. This, in this, okay. It's going to get good, I promise. 11 of these 621 days have already been corrected by the Gregorian reform. So if you take the 18 minus the 11, you end up with seven days. So 621 days minus seven, that gives us 614 days. How many of you understand what's happening right here? How many of you have no idea and you don't care? Okay, Paul. He's, he's, he's fishing in his mind with no shoes. All right, so 2,483, 365-day years. This is not the 360-day years. It's the 365-day years. That's 906,295 days plus 614 days that we have to add in for the leap years. That ends up with this, okay? So what we have, if you look at, this is 360 days. That equals this many 365-day years plus nine months and 21 days, all right? So this is, what we, this is how we end up with this, and I know you have all of that in your head now, so let's move on. I want you to see what this means, Okay, now don't confuse the servitude of the nation with the desolations of Jerusalem. 606 B.C., 587 B.C. Each 70-year periods, but they're not coterminous. The desolations of Jerusalem was punishment for not yielding to the servitude of the nation. All right, we're not going to look up these verses. I told you that Jeremiah prophesied that that would happen. All right, desolations of Jerusalem, 
That's why that comes after the servitude of the nation. They rebelled and would not submit to the servitude, so God brings the desolation. Both the servitude of the nation and the desolations of Jerusalem were predicted to last 70 years, but these were also 360-day years. All right? If you take 70 years at 360 days, that's 69 years minus two days on a 365-day calendar. Does that make sense to you when you do that math? All right? Now look at this. Don't miss this. Amazing detail, the servitude of the nation. 606 B.C. plus 69 years. So this would be on our calendar. That's 537 B.C. Or I'm sorry, it's July 23rd, 537. This is when the servitude of the nation ended. This is the exact date. We have the date in the Bible. It's the exact date. This was the release from the servitude of the nation. So 537 years, 7 months, 23 days, right? That's July 23rd, 537 B.C. Then you have to add 1 because you don't count for the year 0. If you add, then 2,483 years, 9 months, 21 days, that ends up 1,948 years, 5 months, 14 days. What is that? That's May 14th, 1948. It was on this date that David Ben-Gurion declared on international radio, using Ezekiel as his authority, the reestablishment of Israel as the new Jewish homeland. God put that date in the Bible. It's in the Bible. But wait a minute. What about the desolations of Jerusalem? We can't confuse those two. This is what the servitude of the nation looks like. You break it all down. You have 70 years. You add that to 606, 69 years, 587, July 23rd. You add that and you get May 5th, I'm sorry, May 14th, 1948. Now, let's look at this. What about the desolations of Jerusalem? I decided just for time's sake not to break it all down in individual slides, but I want you to see this. So we know that 587 plus the 69 years, that takes us to 518. If August 16th, 518 was the completion of the walls, and again, we have all of that recorded, that's 518, eight months and 16 days plus the no year zero, 2483 years, 9 months, 21 days. That takes us to June 7th, 1967. On June 7th, 1967, the biblical city of Jerusalem was restored to the nation. The 55th Paratrooper Brigade captured Jerusalem from the east, one of two known historical instances. The other was when King David did it. And listen, General Mordecai Gur, he said this, the Temple Mount is in our hands. Repeat, the Temple Mount is in our hands. That ended the desolations of Jerusalem. Remember, the temple wasn't destroyed in 606. It was destroyed in 587. And you take the same math, and it's the exact day where they recaptured Jerusalem. It's hard for us to get our heads around the history of this because very few of us have been, were alive 
before Israel was a nation again. Israel has been a nation my whole life. Imagine trying to study history and figure it all out, trying to study, I'm sorry, trying to study prophecy, trying to figure it all out when it's saying there's going to be a nation again and there's no nation of Israel. What are you talking about? And then you do the math and on the exact day that the Bible prophesied, Israel's a nation again. And on the exact day God prophesied, they take the Temple Mount again. Now, you know that they turned it back over to the Palestinian Authority to keep the peace. And the Palestinian Authority controls the Temple Mount right now. But they actually won the victory on the day that God said they would. But then they foolishly gave it back. And this is why God has to come and settle it all when Jesus Christ returns. Now, believe every word of God. How many of you are glad you came to church today? God's word is true. Every word of God is true. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to submit to it. Lord, thank you for showing us marvelous things from your word.